Some of what you've heard about Eileen Warnos is true. Yes, she killed seven men in Florida. Yes, she was a prostitute. She gave a shocking, detailed confession at the behest of her lesbian ex-lover, and during her trial, she was legally adopted by a well-meaning woman who claimed to receive her instruction from God. She had memorable, profane outbursts in more than one courtroom, and she was executed October 9, 2002, the recipient of six death sentences, more than anyone else residing on death row. All these things are true. However, it is essential to dispel some of the hyperbole surrounding the Warnos case at the outset. She was not America's first female serial killer. Women have been murdering serially for as long as men, although their victims are usually family members or acquaintances, and they most often choose poison over other means of disposal. Warnos killed strangers with a gun, an unusual but not unprecedented fact that the media seized upon and ran with rampantly. Furthermore, Warnos's activities as a prostitute are ridiculously exaggerated. Her claim of having sex with 250,000 men, which was widely reported as truth, is preposterous. Such a feat would require the betting of 35 different men a day, every day, for 20 years. Warnos had neither the stamina nor the planning skills necessary for such a record-breaking performance. Even with these most sensational claims discredited, Eileen Warnos remains intriguing. She is both repellent and strangely pathetic. Her belligerence all but sealed her fate from the moment she was apprehended and inspired contempt in most who encountered her or heard of her case. Her bravado and her claims that all seven of her victims tried to rape her are as incomprehensible as her boast of having serviced 250,000 Johns. Add to these the melodrama of her confession, her befriending and adoption by Arlene Prahl, and her never-had-a-chance personal history, and her story fairly reels one in. To characterize Eileen Warnos's start in life as a poor beginning is truly an understatement. It was an awful beginning from the time she was born, February 29, 1956, as Eileen Carol Pittman. One of the few good things in her young life, ironically, was that her biological father, Leo Dale Pittman, never got to know her. Pittman was a psychopathic child molester who hanged himself in prison in 1969. When his grandfather died of throat cancer, his grandmother spoiled him even more, baking him cakes and giving him money. In his teens, he returned her love and kindness by beating and abusing her. One of his favorite games was to tie two cats together by their tails and throw them over a clothesline to watch them fight. Her mother, Diane Warnos, married Pittman when she was 15 and bore him two children in Rochester, Michigan. Eileen's older brother, Keith, was born in 1955. Diane divorced Pittman less than two years into the marriage, a few months before Eileen was born. Diane was afraid of Pittman, and with good reason. Diane found the responsibilities of single motherhood unbearable, and in 1960, she abandoned Eileen and her brother Keith, who were then adopted by their maternal grandparents, Lori and Britta Warnos, in 1960. They did not reveal that they were, in fact, the children's grandparents. Eileen discovered the truth at around age 12, information which did not help an already troublesome situation. Lori Warnos drank heavily and was strict with the children. When Eileen and Keith discovered their true parentage, they rebelled. 
In 1962, at age six, she was severely burned while she and Keith set fires with lighter fluid. Although she recovered, she was permanently scarred on her face. When the doubled-over belt flew down onto her bare buttocks, little Eileen railed against her father, petrified and crying noisily. Sometimes she lay face down, spread-eagled and naked on the bed for her whippings. Eileen was sexually promiscuous at a very young age and later told the police that she had sex with Keith at an early age, although acquaintances doubt the story. Eileen was pregnant at age 14 and sent to an unwed mother's home. She had a boy who was adopted in 1971. Fortunately for the child, Eileen did not end up raising him. In July of the same year, Britta Warnos died, supposedly of liver failure. Diane, Eileen's biological mother, believed that Laurie killed her. Eileen and Keith's truancy and pregnancy put Britta through a lot of stress, and she had started to drink heavily again. The night of Britta's death, she was having convulsions. If there was culpability on the part of Laurie, it was the fact that he did not call the ambulance in time because he had no money. Eileen, known to friends as Lee, dropped out of school, left home, and took up hitchhiking and prostitution. In the next few years, Keith died of throat cancer at the age of 21, Laurie committed suicide, and Eileen headed for Florida. When Eileen was 20, she was hitchhiking when a wealthy 69-year-old yacht club president named Louis Fell picked her up. He fell in love with her instantly. When they married in 1976, the news was actually printed in the society pages. This was a real stroke of luck for her, but she was too wild and destructive to understand when she had it good. She treated Fell badly, got into bar fights, and was sent to jail for assault. Needless to say, in a month or so after the marriage, Fell realized his mistake and had the marriage annulled. For the next decade, she lurched from one failed relationship to another, engaging in prostitution, forgery, theft, and armed robbery. Along the way, she tried to commit suicide. Emotionally and physically, she was a mess from the drinking and doping and self-destructive lifestyle. When she met 24-year-old Tyria Moore at a Daytona gay bar in 1986, Eileen was lonely and angry and ready for something new. For a while, it was great. Ty loved her and didn't leave her. She even quit her job as a motel maid for a while and allowed Lee to support her with her prostitution earnings. Their ardor cooled, however, and money ran short. Still, Ty stayed with Lee, following her from cheap motel to cheap motel, with stints in old barns or in the woods in between. Lee's market value as a prostitute, never spectacular, fell even more. Their existence, meager though it was, became ever harder to maintain. Clearly, something had to change. Richard Mallory liked to change now and again, too. The middle-aged owner of a Clearwater, Florida electronics repair business was known to close up shop abruptly and disappear for a few days at a time on drinking and sex binges. He changed the locks to his apartment eight times in three years. He kept employees at his business only long enough to clear the backlog of work that accrued during one of his disappearances, letting them go once his repair orders were caught up again. His only constants were alcohol, sex, and paranoia. So when he didn't show up to open his shop in early December 1989, no one thought much of it. There was no one close enough to him to notice he was gone. It wasn't until his 1977 Cadillac was found a few days later outside Daytona that anyone knew anything was amiss. On December 13, 1989, 
two young men were looking for scrap metal along a dirt road close to Interstate 95 in Volusia County, Florida. Instead of saleable junk, they found a body wrapped in a rubber-backed carpet runner. Fingerprints carefully taken from the badly decomposed hands proved that this was Richard Mallory, who had last been seen 13 days earlier. He had been killed with three shots from a 22. Several months of investigation into his sordid lifestyle and somewhat shady acquaintances produced no real leads. Initial suspicion revolved around a stripper who went by the name of Chastity. Sue Russell writes that Chastity had told her boyfriend that she had gone for several days to party with Mallory and that she had killed him. When investigators arrested Chastity, they realized that her confession was prompted by a burst of anger at her boyfriend and was not true. After a number of dead ends, Mallory's case went cold. On June 1st, another unidentified naked male body was found in the woods of Citrus County, Florida, about 40 miles north of Tampa. The victim was identified on June 7th as David Spears, 43, of Sarasota. Spears had been a heavy equipment operator who was last seen on May 19th. He told his boss that he was going to Orlando, but he never made it. His truck was found shortly after that on Interstate 75 with the doors unlocked and the license plate missing. Spears had been shot several times with a 22. Manners writes that a used condom was found near his body. Meanwhile, 30 miles south in Pasco County, yet another naked body was found a few miles off Interstate 75. This one was discovered on June 6th and was so badly decomposed that medical examiners were not able to obtain fingerprints and could not estimate the time of death. The nine bullets found in the remains were damaged by the decomposition, but were determined to have come from a 22 caliber weapon. According to Michael Reynolds, Pasco County Detective Tom Muck had no immediate luck identifying his John Doe, later determined to be Charles Karskadon, but had heard about the case in Citrus County. He notified Citrus County Sheriff's investigator Marvin Paget about the similarities and told him to stay in touch. On July 4th, a car careened off State Road 315 near Orange Springs, Florida, and came to rest in some brush. Rhonda Bailey, who was sitting on her porch at the time and watched the accident happen, said two women clambered frantically from the car, throwing beer cans into the woods and swearing at each other. The brown-haired woman said little. The blonde, whose arm was bleeding from an injury sustained in the crash, did most of the talking. She begged Bailey not to call the police, saying her father lived just up the road. She and her companion got back in the car, which now had a smashed windshield and other damage, and got it out of the brush. The crippled vehicle didn't take them far, though. They abandoned it just down the road and began walking. Hubert Hewitt of the Orange Springs Volunteer Fire Department responded to a call about the accident and asked the two women if they had been the ones in the car. The blonde cursed at him and said no, they had not, and they did not want any help. He left them alone, and they walked on. Marion County Sheriff's deputies found the car where the women had left it. It was a 1988 Pontiac Sunbird, gray with four doors. The glass in the front doors, as well as the windshield, were smashed. There were apparent bloodstains throughout the interior, and the license plate was missing. A computer search based on the VIN number revealed that the car belonged to Peter Seams, who had disappeared on June 7th after leaving his home in Jupiter, Florida, to visit relatives in Arkansas. Seams was a 65-year-old retired merchant seaman who devoted much of his time to a Christian outreach ministry. John Wisniewski of the Jupiter Police, who had been working the case since Seams was reported missing, sent out a nationwide teletype containing descriptions of the two women. 
He also sent a synopsis of the case and sketches of the woman to the Florida Criminal Activity Bulletin. Then he waited. He was not optimistic about finding Seams alive. Troy Burris left on his delivery route from Gilchrist Sausage early on the morning of July 30th. When he didn't return that afternoon, Gilchrist manager Johnny May Thompson started calling around and discovered Burris hadn't shown up at his last few delivery stops. Late that night, she and her husband went out looking for him. At 2 a.m., Burris's wife reported him missing. At 4 a.m., Marion County Sheriff's deputies found his truck on the shoulder of State Road 19, 20 miles east of Ocala. It was unlocked and the keys were missing. So was Burris. He was found five days later. A family out for a picnic in the Ocala National Forest happened upon his body in a clearing just off Highway 19, about eight miles from where his truck was found. The Florida heat and humidity had hastened decomposition, precluding identification of the scene, but his wife identified his wedding ring. He had been killed with two shots from a 22 caliber gun, one to the chest and one to the back. Investigator John Tilley's initial suspect was a drifter named Curtis Michael Blankenship. He had been hitchhiking on Highway 19 the day of Burris's disappearance and was picked up close to the abandoned truck. It became evident as the investigation progressed, however, that Blankenship was not involved. For the time being, Tilly had no more suspects. Dick Humphreys never made it home from his last day of work at the Sumterville office of the Florida's Department of Health and Rehabilitation Services. A protective investigator specializing in abused and injured children, he was about to transfer to the department's Ocala office. He was 56, and this was not his first career. Previously, he'd been a police chief in Alabama. He celebrated his 35th wedding anniversary on September 10th. On September 11th, he disappeared. On the evening of September 12th, his body was found in Marion County. He'd been shot seven times. Six 22 caliber slugs were recovered from his body. The seventh went through his wrist and was never found. His car was found in late September in Suwanee County. About a month later, the nude body of Walter Gino Antonio was found on a logging road in Dixie County. 60-year-old Antonio was a trucker, a sometimes security guard, and a member of the reserve police. He'd been shot four times with a 22. When he was found on November 19th, he'd been dead less than 24 hours. His car was found five days later across the state in Brevard County. Captain Steve Binegar was command of the Marion County Sheriff's Criminal Investigation Division, and he knew about the crimes in Citrus and Pasco counties. He could not ignore the similarities and was formulating a theory, along with the multi-agency task force, with representatives from counties where victims were found. No one stopped to pick up hitchhikers anymore, he reasoned. So the perpetrator, or perpetrators, of these crimes had to be initially non-threatening to the victims. He suspected women. Specifically, he suspected the two women who had wrecked Peter Seam's car and walked away. He turned to the press for help. In late November, Reuters ran a story about the killings, saying police were looking for the women. Papers across Florida picked up the story and ran with it, along with the police sketches of the women in question. It didn't take long for the leads to start pouring in, and by mid-December, police had several tips involving the same two women. A man in Homosassa Springs said the two women had rented a trailer from him about a year earlier. Their names were Tyria Moore and Lee. A woman in Tampa said the women had worked at her motel south of Ocala. Their names, she said, were Tyria Moore and Susan Blahovec. An anonymous caller identified the women as Ty Moore 
and Lee Blahovec, who bought an RV in Homosassa Springs. Lee Blahovec was the dominant one, the caller said, and a truck stop prostitute. Both were lesbians. The mother load, though, came from Port Orange near Daytona. Police there had been tracking the movements of Lee Blahovec and Tyria Moore and provided a detailed account of the couple's movements from late September to mid-December. They had stayed, primarily, at the Fairview Motels in Harbor Oaks, where Blahovec registered as Cami Marsh Green. They spent a bit of time living in the small apartment behind a restaurant very near the Fairview, but returned to the motel. In early December, they left the Fairview. Blahovic Green returned alone and stayed until December 10. A quick computer check gave the driver's license and criminal record information on Tyria Moore, Susan Blahovic, and Cami Marsh Green. Moore had no real record, breaking and entering charges against her in 1983 having been dropped. Blahovic had one trespassing arrest, while Green had no record at all. Additionally, the photograph on Blahovec's license did not match the one for Green. The Green ID was the one that paid off best. Volusia County officers checked area pawn shops and found that in Daytona, Cami Marsh Green had pawned a camera and a radar detector and had left the requisite thumbprint on the receipt. These items had belonged to Richard Mallory. In Ormond Beach, she pawned a set of tools that matched the description of those taken from David Spears's truck. The thumbprint was the key. Jenny Ahern of the Automated Fingerprint Identification System found nothing on her initial computer search, but came to Volusia County and began a hand search of fingerprint records there. Within an hour, she found what she came for. The print showed up on a weapons charge and outstanding warrant against a Lori Grody. A bloody palm print found in Peter Sims's Sunbird matched Lori Grody's prints as well. All this information was sent to the National Crime Information Center. Responses came from Michigan, Colorado, and Florida. Lori Grody, Susan Blahovec, and Cami Marsh Green were all aliases for Eileen Carol Warnos. The hunt for Warnos began in earnest on January 5, 1991. Pairs of officers, including two undercover as Bucket and Drums, drug dealers down from Georgia, hit the streets, hoping to track her down. On the evening of January the 8th, Mike Joyner and Dick Martin, in their roles as Bucket and Drums, spotted her at the Port Orange pub. They meant for their takedown to develop gradually, as they wanted an airtight case, but Port Orange police entered suddenly and took Warnos outside. Mike Joyner frantically phoned the command post at the Pirate's Cove Motel, where authorities from six jurisdictions had come to work the case. This development wasn't because of a leak, they surmised. These were just cops doing their jobs. Bob Kelly of the Volusia County Sheriff's Office called the Port Orange Police Station and told them not to arrest Warnos under any circumstances. The word was relayed to the cops in the nick of time, and Warnos returned to the bar. Joyner and Martin struck up a conversation with her and bought her a few beers. She left the bar at around 10 o'clock, declining an offer for a ride. Once again, the cautious takedown was almost ruined. Two Florida Department of Law Enforcement officers pulled up behind Warnos as she walked down Ridgewood Avenue, following her with their lights off. Officers at the command post made a call to get the FDLE officers off the street, and Warnos made it to her next destination, a biker bar called The Last Resort. Joyner and Martin met her there for a while, drank more beers, shot more bull. They left just after midnight. Warnos didn't leave at all. She spent her last night of freedom sleeping on an old car seat in the last resort. 
The following afternoon, Joyner and Martin were back at the last resort as Bucket and Drums, talking Warnos up and wearing transmitters that kept the police apprised of everything that went on. They had planned on making their caller later that night, but the last resort was gearing up for a barbecue and bikers would start pouring in any second. The decision was made at the command post to go ahead with the arrest. Joyner and Martin asked Warnos if she'd like to get cleaned up at their motel room. She accepted their offer and left the bar with them. Outside on the steps, Larry Horzipa of the Volusia County Sheriff's Office approached her and told her she was being arrested on the outstanding warrant for Lori Grody. No mention was made of the murders, and no announcement was made to the media that a suspect had been arrested. Their caution was wise. As of yet, they had no murder weapon and no Tyria Moore. On January 10th, Moore was located. She was living with her sister in Pittston, Pennsylvania. Jerry Thompson of Citrus County and Bruce Munster of Marion County flew to Scranton, Pennsylvania to interview her. She was read her rights, but not charged with anything. Munster made sure she knew what perjury was, swore her in, and sat back as she gave her statement. She had known about the murders since Lee had come home with Richard Mallory's Cadillac, she said. Lee had openly confessed that she had killed a man that day, but Moore told her not to say anything else. I told her I didn't want to hear about it, Moore told Munster and Thompson. And then any time she would come home after that and say certain things, telling me about where she got something, I'd say, I don't want to hear it. She had her suspicions, she admitted, but wanted to know as little as possible about Lee's doings. The more she knew, she reasoned, the more compelled she would feel about reporting Lee to the authorities. And she didn't want to do that. I was just scared, she said. She always said she'd never hurt me. But then you can't believe her, so I didn't know what she would have done. The next day, Moore accompanied Munster and Thompson back to Florida to assist the investigation. A confession would make the case against Warnos virtually airtight, and Munster and Thompson explained their plan for obtaining one to Moore on the flight. They would put her in a Daytona motel and have her make contact with Lee in jail, saying she'd received money from her mother and came down to get the rest of her things. Their phone conversations would be taped, and Moore was to tell Warnos that authorities had been questioning her family that she thought the Florida murders would be mistakenly pinned on her, Moore. Munster and Thompson hoped that, out of loyalty to Moore, Warnos would confess. The first call from Warnos came on January 14th. She was still under the impression that she was only in jail for the Lori Grody weapons violation. When Moore broached her suspicions, Warnos reassured her. I'm only in here for that concealed weapons charge in 86 and a traffic ticket, she said. And I tell you what, man, I read the newspapers, and I wasn't one of those little suspects. She was aware, though, that the jailhouse phone was monitored and made efforts to speak of the crimes in code words and to construct alibis. I think someone at work, where you worked at, said something that it looked like us, she said. And it isn't us, see? It's a case of mistaken identity. For three days, the calls continued. Moore became more insistent that the police were after her, and it became clear that Warnos knew what was expected of her. She even voiced suspicion that Moore was not alone, that someone was there taping their conversations. But as time passed, she became less careful about what she said. She would not let Moore go down with her. Just go ahead and let them know what you need to know, what they want to know, or anything, she said, and I will cover for you because you're innocent. I'm not going to let you go to jail. Listen, if I have to confess, I will. And on the morning of January 16th, 
She did. Warnos came back to two main points over and over during her confession to Larry Horzipa and Bruce Munster. First, she made it clear that Moore was not involved in any way in any of the murders. Additionally, she was emphatic in her assertion that nothing was her fault, not the murders, and not any circumstance that led her down the criminal path that was her life. All the killings were made in self-defense, she claimed. Each victim had either assaulted her, threatened her, or raped her. Her story seemed to develop as she told it. When she thought she'd said something incriminating, she would back up and retell that part, changing details to suit her overall scenario. She'd been raped several times in the past few years, she claimed, and she had had enough. When each of her victims became aggressive, she killed out of fear. Several times, Michael O'Neill, a public defender from the Volusia County Public Defender's Office, advised Warnos to stop talking, finally asking in exasperation, Do you realize these guys are cops? Warnos answered, I know, and they wanted to hang me, and that's cool, because maybe, man, I deserve it. I just want to get this over with. An avalanche of book and movie offers poured into detectives, relatives, more, and even Warnos herself. Warnos seemed to think she would make millions from her story, not yet realizing that Florida had a law against criminals profiting in such a manner. She was all over the local and national media. She felt famous, and she continued to talk about the crimes with anyone who would listen, including Volusia County jail employees. With each retelling, she refined her story, casting herself in a better light each time. Into this Talmud came Arlene Prahl, a 44-year-old born-again Christian who ran a horse breeding and boarding facility near Ocala. She had seen Warnus's picture in the newspaper and wrote her a letter. My name is Arlene Prahl, she began. I'm born again. You're going to think I'm crazy, but Jesus told me to write to you. She provided her home telephone number, and on January 30th, Warnos called her, collect, for the first time. Almost immediately, Prowl became her ardent defender and helpmate. Prowl advised her that her public defenders were trying to profit from her story, as was everyone else. Warnos asked for and got new attorneys. Prowl spoke with reporters, describing her relationship with Warnos to a Vanity Fair reporter as a soul-binding. We're like Jonathan and David in the Bible. It's as though part of me is trapped in jail with her. We always know what the other is feeling and thinking. To another reporter, she said, If the world could know the real Eileen Warnos, there's not a jury that would convict her. Throughout 1991, Prowl appeared on talk shows and in tabloids, talking to anyone who would listen about what she perceived as Warnos's true good nature. She arranged interviews for Warnos with reporters she thought would be sympathetic, and in this forum, Warnos continued to tell and embellish her fantastic story. Both Warnos and Prowl emphasized Warnos's troubled upbringing, and both leveled accusations of corruption and complicity at anyone who was handy, the agents proffering the book and movie deals, the detectives, the attorneys, and especially Tyria Moore. And just when it seemed things couldn't get any weirder, they did. On November 22, 1991, Arlene Prowl and her husband legally adopted Eileen Warnos. Prowl said God had told her to. Warnos's attorneys engineered a plea bargain, to which Warnos agreed, in which she would plead to six charges and receive six consecutive life terms. One state attorney, however, thought she should receive the death penalty, 
So on January 14, 1992, Warnos went to trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. The evidence and witnesses against her were severely damaging. Dr. Arthur Bodding, the medical examiner who had autopsied Mallory's body, stated that Mallory had taken between 10 and 20 agonizing minutes to die. Tyria Moore testified that Warnos had not seemed overly upset, nervous, or drunk when she told her of killing Mallory. Twelve men told of encounters with her along Florida's highways over the years. Florida had a law known as the Williams Rule that allowed evidence relating to other crimes to be admitted if it helps to show a pattern. Because of the Williams Rule, information regarding the other killings were presented to the jury. Warnus's claim of having killed in self-defense would have been a lot more believable had the jury known only of Mallory. Now, with the jury made aware of all the murders, self-defense seemed improbable at best. After the excerpts from her videotape confession were played, the self-defense claim seemed ridiculous. On the tape, Warnos appeared confident and not at all upset by the story she was telling. She made easy conversation with her interrogators and repeatedly told her public defender to be quiet. Her image spoke from the screen. I took a life. I am willing to give up my life because I killed people who deserve to die. Trisha Jenkins, one of Warnos's public defenders, did not want her client to testify and told her so. But Warnos insisted on telling her story. By now, her account of Mallory's killing barely resembled the one she gave in her confession. Mallory had raped and sodomized her, she claimed, and had tortured her. On cross-examination, Prosecutor John Tanner obliterated any shred of credibility she may have had. As he brought to light all of her lies and inconsistencies, she became agitated and angry. Her attorneys repeatedly advised her not to answer questions, and she invoked her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination 25 times. She was the defense's only witness, and when she left the stand, there was not much doubt about how her trial would end. On January 27th, Judge Uriel Blount charged the jury. They returned with their verdict less than two hours later. They found Warnos guilty of first-degree murder, and as they filed out of the courtroom, she exploded with rage, shouting, I'm innocent! I was raped! I hope you get raped, scumbags of America! Her outburst was still fresh in the minds of jurors when the penalty phase of her trial began the next day. Expert witnesses for the defense testified that Warnos was mentally ill, that she suffered from borderline personality disorder, and that her tumultuous upbringing had stunted and ruined her. Jenkins referred to her client as a damaged, primitive child as she pleaded with the jury to spare Warnos's life. But jurors neither forgot nor forgave the woman they'd come to know during the trial. With a unanimous verdict, they recommended that Judge Blount sentence her to the electric chair. He did so on January 31st. Warnos did not stand trial again. On March 31, 1992, she pleaded no contest to the murders of Dick Humphreys, Troy Burris, and David Spears, saying she wanted to get right with God. In a rambling statement to the court, she said, I wanted to confess to you that Richard Mallory did violently rape me, as I've told you, but these others did not. They only began to start to. She ended her monologue by turning to Assistant State Attorney Rick Ridgway and hissing, I hope your wife and children get raped in the... <laughs> On May 15th, 
Judge Thomas Sawaya handed her three more death sentences. She made an obscene gesture and muttered, Mother In June 1992, she pleaded guilty to the murder of Charles Karskaden, and in November, she received her fifth death sentence. In early February of 1993, she was sentenced to die after pleading guilty to the murder of Walter Gino Antonio. No charges were brought for the murder of Peter Seams, as his body was never found. For a time, there is speculation that Warnos might receive a new trial for the murder of Richard Mallory. New evidence showed that Mallory had served 10 years in prison for sexual violence, and attorneys felt that jurors would have seen the case differently had they known this fact. No new trial was forthcoming, though. The state Supreme Court of Florida had affirmed all six of her death sentences. I'm one who seriously hates human life and would kill again, she wrote in a letter to the Florida Supreme Court, which in April agreed to allow her to fire her attorneys and stop her appeals. According to the Associated Press, she was also allowed to choose lethal injection over the electric chair, changing the manner in which she would die. CNN reported that Governor Jeb Bush issued a stay and ordered a mental exam, but lifted the stay in the first week of October 2002, after three psychiatrists who interviewed her concluded that she understood she would die and why she was being executed. Associated Press reported that serial killer Eileen Warnos was executed by lethal injection at 9.47 a.m. Wednesday, October 9, 2002, more than a decade after she murdered six men along Central Florida highways while working as a prostitute. The execution took place at Florida State Prison near Stark, Florida. Warnos, 46, was the 10th woman in the U.S. and the second woman in Florida to be executed since the death penalty resumed in 1976, according to the Death Penalty Information Center. 51 men have been executed by Florida between 1976 and October 2002. Judy Buenoano was the other woman executed in Florida during that time span. I'd just like to say I'm sailing with the rock and I'll be back. Like Independence Day with Jesus, June 6, like the movie Big Mothership and All, I'll be back, Warner said from the execution chamber. The rock is a biblical reference to Jesus. For years, Warnos claimed she shot the men out of self-defense while being raped and sodomized. Later, she recanted her claims, saying she wanted to make peace with God. Warnos also claimed to have killed a seventh man. Her life story spawned two movies, several books, and the opera Warnos by Carla Lucero. Warnos gave her last media interview just days before her execution to British producer Nick Broomfield who did a documentary on her in 1993, but she stormed out after 35 minutes, Broomfield said. My conclusion from the interview is, today we are executing someone who is mad. Here's someone who has totally lost her mind. State attorney John Tanner, who watched psychiatrist interviewer for 30 minutes last week, said she was cognizant and lucid. She knew exactly what she was doing, Tanner said. Serial killer Eileen Lee Warnos who confessed to fatally shooting seven men along the Florida highways, received a lethal injection in October 2002. In an odd twist to the story, despite her six death sentences, it was Lee's choice to end her life that day. Her execution was carried out amid a hotbed of controversy about capital punishment in the U.S., with Illinois Governor Ryan at the forefront. 
Ryan declared a total moratorium on executions in his state after it released its 13th wrongly convicted prisoner. Florida Governor Jeb Bush also stayed some executions. Lee put herself on a different track, however, by becoming that rarity, a volunteer for execution. Had she not, she would likely still be alive, languishing in her Spartan six-foot-by-nine-foot cell, barely seeing anyone but prison guards and starved for human touch. She had quite simply had enough. Wanting to die was nothing new for Warnos, who first voiced her wish to get on with the execution a decade earlier after her first guilty verdict. She wanted to get right with God, she said. Despite some wavering and her lawyer's attempts to dissuade her, she stood firm in that resolve over the years. This, despite her various appellate lawyers' best efforts to talk her out of it. Lee fought for and won the right to fire her counsel. Several psychiatrists also found she fully understood the ramifications of waiving her rights to all further appeals, so the way was clear for her death warrant. For Governor Bush, serial killer Eileen Warnos's volunteer status was the dealmaker. He held off on signing other death warrants, but signed and let the ink dry on Lee's. Of course, Lee's crimes were never in doubt thanks to her confession although some believe there are likely more victims we still don't know about. Where confusion reigned was in her motive. Predator-like, she systematically shot to death and robbed strangers after she flagged them down while hitchhiking and, once in their cars, offered sex. After her arrest, she was almost immediately labeled a man-hating lesbian. The assumption about her sexuality was based on her four-year love relationship with Tyria Moore, whom she called her wife. Uncannily, Tyria, with her strawberry red hair, freckled face, and stocky build, eerily resembled Leo Pittman, the birth father Lee never met. Yet Lee is better described as bisexual. She had a couple of other girlfriends, but also had sexual and romantic and emotional relationships with men. She chose to be with them, loved some, and instigated sex with men, even when there was no payment involved. In 1981, she was so in love with one boyfriend, and so distraught when she believed their relationship was over, that she planned to kill herself, unable to imagine life without him. That day, she got drunk and bought a gun, but instead of turning it on herself, she held up a supermarket while dressed in a bikini. After serving 18 months of her three-year prison sentence, she went to live with yet another man, one of several prison pen pals. Lee often said she liked sex with men, and her sex life with Tyria waned enough for Tyria to complain to her best friend about it. Lee herself said that her greater love for Tyria wasn't sexual. The real driving force in Lee's life wasn't sex at all. It was a search for an emotional bond and love. Love that she'd never really had. From her abandoning mother, her emotionally and physically abusive grandfather, or, it seems, from the grandmother who failed to protect her from him. Certainly not from the callous young males who had sex with her while she was an adolescent. She was far more familiar with loss than with love, having lost her beloved brother Keith to cancer at age 21 and having her baby son taken away from her after she gave birth at age 15. Lee found the deep emotional bond she desperately craved with Tyria. Her borderline personality disorder carried with it an overwhelming fear of abandonment. I scrutinized closely the violent year during which Lee snuffed out seven lives, at least six of the seven murder dates, 
matched times when she felt under heightened threat of losing Tyria. That desperate fear might well have been the trigger to rob and kill, what some profilers call the precipitating factor. In Lee's mind, to keep Ty, she needed money. Almost without exception, she killed men with several hundred dollars on them. With her rough, fading looks and prostitution clients harder to find, several hundred dollars was a lot of money to Lee. Her habit was to return home smiling after a murder, waving her ill-gotten gains and promising Tyria that she could now pay the rent, buy the beer, pay for a trip to SeaWorld, pay for them to party, pay for whatever. Later, Lee said that Tyria was greedy and mercenary, and the infusion of cash seemed, until the police net really tightened, to help keep Ty at her side. At least Lee believed it did, and that's what counts. Tyria's sister was staying with her and Lee during one particularly bloody three-week period when Lee murdered three men. The sisters were close, and Lee was rattled, desperately afraid that when the sister returned home to Ohio, Tyria would leave with her. We don't know if Lee got a sexual thrill from taking lives, male serial killer style, although, as a prostitute, her crimes outwardly had a sexual component. Several victims were found naked. It was her killing of at least three strangers in different locations, with a cooling-off period between murders, that led to her being called the first female serial killer. As the first woman to fit the FBI guidelines in that regard, she broke the mold. Female multiple murderers typically kill inmates, husbands, and lovers, black widow style for monetary gain, or babies, or the weak and infirm. Certainly, Lee liked the power of holding a man's life in her hands. But she was also a robber who killed for practical reasons. She didn't want to leave behind any witnesses. She carried Windex with her gun in her kill bag, ready to wipe away fingerprints and cover her tracks. It's true that Lee hated men, but less acknowledged is that she hated people in general. Most people. She was deeply, uncontrollably angry. Inevitably, her outbursts of rage, ugly moods, and volatile temperament drove away the very people she longed to draw close. Cammie Green, an old friend of Tyria's, whose ID Lee stole, put it this way, She had a bad attitude. I'm sure a lot of men had hurt her but it was people in general. Lee died as she lived, pretty much alone. Not only did Tyria betray her love by working with police to trap her into confessing to the murders, but she wouldn't look her in the eye during court appearances. In the end, Lee's adopted mother, Arlene Prowl, the Christian woman who publicly befriended then adopted her after her arrest, was noticeably absent. Their relationship withstood much turmoil but eventually soured. Prowl didn't even know her daughter's execution date. The only constant in Lee's life was her old school friend from Michigan, Dawn, with whom she slept in cars as a teenager. Lee's closest friend in her last years, Dawn was her committed pen pal and sometime visitor and spent some of Lee's last hours with her on death row. Eileen Warnos started her life without love and, save for Dawn's support, ended it the same way.